This is the FS Tech Podcast. Welcome to the FS Tech Podcast. I'm Hannah McGrath, editor of FS Tech, and today we're going to take a look at cyber liability insurance and how FS companies can ensure they have the right basic controls in place to not only prevent an attack, but also help reduce their cyber liability insurance premiums. Research shows that organizations with compromised user credentials, normally through a data breach, are many times more likely to fall victim to a ransomware attack. And when you consider that the rate of ransomware attacks has more than doubled in the past year, it's no wonder that the cost of cyber liability insurance, which is designed to support a business in the event of an attack or a breach, has risen exponentially in the last year. Many insurance providers now expect FSIs to have visibility of a network's data security and potential vulnerabilities before they're able to assess risk and make an accurate quote for coverage. And with the cost of coverage reaching tens of thousands of pounds per year, depending on an organization's size and cyber risk exposure, financial services providers are under growing pressure to prove to insurers that they have the right authentication, controls and oversight to stop the bad actors at the front door or risk hefty premiums. In addition, failure to arrange the right cyber liability coverage can leave FSIs either overcharged or dangerously exposed to the financial and reputational consequences of a successful cyber attack, meaning in this case that an ounce of prevention is worth far more than a few pounds of cure. So in today's podcast, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Richard Archdeacon. He's advisory CISO at Duo, which is now part of Cisco. And we're going to delve further into these challenges with Richard today. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. It's great to have you here. Hello. Good to be here. Fantastic. And so I'm just going to jump straight in with the questions. And that is, how has the cyber risk landscape for financial services institutions changed in the last 18 months to two years? And what has the knock on effect been on the need for cyber protection like cyber insurance? We're living in an interesting time around cyber liability insurance. And I've been looking at this now for many years and seeing it gradually develop. Uh, the whole idea of cyber liability insurance is fairly new. It's a relatively new form of insurance. It's in its infancy. Some people describe it as a toddler in the world of insurance, where you know we've had things like property insurance that have been around for centuries. So it's a new new form of insurance. And as a result, it's, it's still learning its way. And in the last few years, I think there have been some really big, hefty changes in how these insurance companies have been impacted by cyber liability insurance. You mentioned the increase in ransomware attacks, for example, which is one of those areas which has caused more of the liability for them. I was actually reading some reports on this, and I think a report from last year said that um, insurers paid out something like 74% of their premiums last year compared to 34% in 2018. So it's a huge rise, a huge cost. So they're still trying to find out what's going on. And of course, just a, a few months ago, we had the big case around the, the Merck case around non and whether or not that was a nation state attack and how that's now going to impact on insurance. So one of the learnings from that case is for every CISO to look at their clauses to see exactly how they're defined and what would be the difference in the legal interpretation. I think we have that whole change in the industry. And you mentioned also the rising cost of insurance. And the World Economic Forum came out with a report again just shortly on, on their global risks for 2022. And they came out with a statistic that in the US, um, cyber insurance pricing had risen by 96% in the third quarter of 2021, which is a phenomenal rise. So it's becoming an issue which the insurance companies are now beginning to focus on. It's going through a very tumultuous set of change which is going to impact through to CISOs 
in that insurance is going to become far more expensive. And when we look at the approach to risk, what do we do with risk? We mitigate, we accept, we transfer. And if it's becoming more expensive to transfer, where do we look about the mitigation and the acceptance? So that's the balance of the equation that we have to look at as CISOs around security, impact of a tumultuous new um, industry, costs going up, and how we use it as part of our risk management program around cybersecurity. Now, those are some of the factors which are now driving the trends in insurance. Absolutely. Thanks very much for that, Richard. And, and an important point there to read the fine print, look at what your, your coverage suggests, what your policy requires, and then make sure that you're covered um, in the current risk landscape. So when it comes to building up a quote, what are insurers looking for when it comes to weighing up the cost of a cyber attack and looking at that sort of risk profile for a company? Again, that's going through a huge amount of change. I, I was, again, going back to about 2018 in the European Union, um, along with the NISA, issued a, a survey report on, on when they looked at uh, what were the key factors considered around insurance. And there was things like size, classification, background, coverage. And, and there were simple questions such as level of encryption and processes. So it was fairly immature. And one of the reasons it was immature was because there was a lack of quantitative data they were doing it on a qualitative basis but that now is again changing as the, there's a whole industry around providing data to insurance companies so they're becoming far more analytical and they can say this kind of vulnerability lead to this kind of incident occurring for example i saw one report where exposed credentials I mean you're four times as likely to be attacked and have an incident so we're beginning to a lot more detailed analysis around what is going on um, and how they're going to assess that. And many insurance companies are now resorting back to the NIST standard, which we're all familiar with, and trying to assess um, how effective controls are against that standard. It's one of many standards, but I think that this is now one of the changes that we're seeing. We want data, we want analysis, we want to actually understand um, how well your security is uh, managed in order for us to try and quantify the risk that we're going to take on. So you have that great big um, change in attitude amongst insurance companies. And again, I was listening to some talks on this the other day, and I heard a senior member of an insurance company talking about RDP um, ports being open. And I would never have expected to hear that five or six years ago, but that's the level of detail they're going into. To what level are you actually covering your RDP ports, how they're exposed? So it's really quite a detailed technical question around security. But I think it's indicative of a far greater focus on metrics and visibility and controls. And as I say, often against a standard such as NIST. So I think that's one of the changes we've, we've got to deal with. And that's how I think we've got to respond our CISOs to those in the insurance industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it looks like they're looking for huge data sets and actually access to within an organization, as, as you said, to really get root and branch visibility on where cyber exposure could be, um, where the, the potential vulnerabilities are, and then costing them appropriately. Because I think if anything, over the last two years, premiums have, have shot up, but also claims have shot up as the incidence of cyber attack has risen. So no wonder that insurance uh, are being far more careful about the, the sort of the data that they take on board when they come to pricing those quotes. So as CISOs um, and, and security departments as well, what should we be bearing in mind when looking at insurance and what are the key steps to be taken here? 
I thought, I think, first of all, recognize where and why you want to have it. And let's face it, we all want to have insurance, but we never want to, to use it. You know, we have car insurance, but we never want to have a claim on it because that means, you know, we had an accident or something. So I think that what we need to do is try and focus in on getting our, our security controls in place, just as we do always, because that will, A, impact on how we approach the insurance company, but also just make our organizations a lot more secure. I think what we also have to do is make sure that we've got very clear metrics and reporting. So that if we are asked a question, we can come up with a very clear status. This is the number of devices that we have on our network. And be very, very clear in the detail that can be given about how we understand our environment, we know what we're protecting, and how well we protect that. And often, as, as many CSOs will tell you, assets are very difficult to track down, CMDBs are often out of date. So it's a focus in on that. These are age-old cyber hygiene questions that could well improve the way we address that whole issue of cyber liability insurance. Okay, so, I mean, we've talked about the CISO, we've talked about the security department, but does this run organisation-wide? Should we be looking at, and certainly insurers, are they looking at, you know, across the organisation, who's responsible for cyber oversight and for making sure that those vulnerabilities are being addressed? Who's in charge of that? And is it something that ownership should be taken for um, across different departments? It's a very interesting question because you are finding insurance companies are now talking about the breadth of view across the organization of security. So one topic which I've heard discussed is governance. How is security governed within the organization? And that will include factors such as the accessibility of the CISO to senior management. So having a very clear governance structure is now going to be taken into account. There's also other factors, of course, that are outside the remit of the CISO. For example, recovery and response. Now, often we're all well aware of, of business continuity and disaster recovery but that's not always the case that that's under the CISO's remit it might well be under the CIO so what is the link there between security and the ability to recover the ability to ensure that you have all your data encrypted one other factor which is also being brought up is the whole concept of culture as well what is the training and how do you approach end users because they are still seen as being um, a source of vulnerability. So what are the training programs in place? So it's a far broader topic than just technical controls. We have to look at governance, we have to look at culture, we have to look and see how we would act um, within a disaster recovery type situation. Absolutely. I mean, I guess the key to this as well is, you know, stopping the, the cyber criminals, stopping the attacks at the front door before they even get the chance to, to get into the, the organisation. So what sort of authentication and data access control should FSIs be rolling out to stop bad actors before they can even sort of get in and start that attack? And that's really interesting, Jane, because I mentioned earlier the idea of a senior insurance person talking about RDP, which I never thought I'd hear for years. But one of the other topics they talk about continually is, is multi-factor authentication. This whole concept of the front door being the most obvious access into the organization. You know, hackers don't um, break in anymore, they just log in using compromised credentials. This is seen as being a huge vulnerability. So I think having multi-factor authentication in place is almost an absolute has to be. You have to put that in place now. I think that's just a given. Make sure you've got it covering your whole organization. I think we also have to go a little bit further on that as well, because one of the other areas that often gets mentioned is endpoint control as well. So how do we understand the status of um, a device as well as knowing they're the correct user? And why are those two elements important? 
Well, if you have a user that's authenticated, you're giving them a certain level of trust. You're allowing them into the organization. But what if the device is compromised? They can then go in on a compromised device. Now, if we take a scenario such as a ransomware attack, which might well be based on a vulnerability on a desktop, if you can bring in a centralized policy control which says nobody can log in unless their device is up to date, you're immediately minimizing that risk. Normally, you would have to go through the whole process of patching every device, but what if you miss something? If you have that policy in place, that vulnerability is addressed, risk is therefore mitigated, impact is therefore mitigated. So having those sort of basic controls around device, user, and then controlling where they go within the organization, those I think are just basic fundamentals that everybody has to do now as part of their cyber hygiene. Absolutely. And people talk about a, a zero trust approach and, and things like least privileged user controls. But what's the best way of implementing those without disrupting workflows for employees? You know, there's a lot of friction that can be caused there when staff just want to do their job if they have to sort of authenticate themselves and prove that they are who they say they are. Again, I think that we've got to turn that around and prove to people that they are far more secure doing this. It's actually a beneficial step to take. So Without going into too many details, for example, if you have an SSO environment, you can just log in once, get authenticated once, and then you can see all your applications. So it saves all of the, the aggravation and hassle of logging in and out the whole time. So that actually can be a lot better for end users than systems without MFA. But I think we also are aware the whole time that security goes across home as well as the organization. So MFA should now become part of our life wherever it is. And so I think that end users understand that that is just what part of what they're doing their work is. But focusing on that end user experience, making sure it's as simple as possible, making sure it's as smooth and easy for them to use and as adaptable as possible. So for example, allowing them to authenticate on a mobile phone or a security key or have an SMS or have a callback, just give them the options, make it easy for the users, and then they'll adapt to it. And then they'll understand the need for it and it'll all become part of the culture change within the organization. Absolutely. My impression is that cyber insurers are looking for that journey. They're looking actually on, on the level of sort of granular detail, trying to get a sense of how users are accessing the organization and the networks. Um, is, is that right? That, you know, that they are really honing in on um, exactly what the front door looks like for organizations before they move to making a quote? Well, as I said earlier, I'd never thought I'd see an insurance executive talking about multi-factor authentication RDP. But this is obviously what they're looking at now as being uh, important factors. And apart from anything, these are presumably are basic elements that we need to have as part of our security anyway. They're mm -hmm. absolutely fundamental. So we should be driving towards those anyway, as well as making sure that we can show that we have that level of control in place to any insurer. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that's all we have time for now, Richard. But if our listeners would like to find out a bit more about Duo and what you guys do, where can we send them? Well, we've got our site, duo.com which will have a lot of information there, a lot of blogs about this. And I would suggest that people go there and uh, they can find out some more. Fantastic. Thanks ever so much, Richard. I, I look forward to welcoming you onto another episode of the FS Tech podcast very soon. Um, and if you guys as listeners would like to suggest a topic for the podcast, please visit the FS Tech website and go to the Contact Us page. Uh, that's all for today. Thanks again, Richard, and uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the FS Tech Podcast.